Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is a Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, audience development, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com slash amopodcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. My guest this week is Jared Dicker, the VP of Commercial at The Washington Post. During our one-hour conversation, we discussed how he got his start in media, why he decided to take a detour into crypto, the disconnect between advertisers and publishers, and his theses around media companies as record labels and the Renaissance creator. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Pretty sure my girlfriend mocks me now when I tell her that we're talking because we're in each other's DMs multiple times a day. But for everyone else out there, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> um, I feel like I'm in a lot of people's DMs lately, but you are definitely like, I feel like you're one of the most uh, common uh, DM conversations I'm having lately. Um, so, so, hey, thanks for having me on. Um, who am I? Uh, so I'm Jared Dicker. Currently, I work at the Washington Post. My role at the Washington Post um, continuously evolves, and my responsibilities are pretty um, are pretty deep. But I'd say uh, the main focus of myself and and the teams that that work within my purview is how can we build a better business for the Washington Post and. By building a better business for the Washington Post, how can we also uh, set the standard for how the media industry and interestingly so like the tech industry can also be building into this future? Um, just to give some sort of numbers, uh, I oversee the commercial group at the Post. So uh, quite literally focused on how we drive business across advertising, subscriptions, uh, events and other things that we do uh, on Washington Post proper. Because of the way we're structured, uh, we're also the R&D team. And I like to say we're a practical R&D team because as we come up with ideas or products or new business solutions that kind of transcend the opportunity on the Washington Post, we, we spin those out and create new businesses out of those. Uh, many of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with our publishing, which kind of was our first um, our first stab at building a business uh, by leveraging the reputation of the Post, but building it outside of the Washington Post. And most recently, we've launched another business, uh, Zeus, which is really focused on advertising technology uh, and building a new advertising infrastructure for the media industry at large. Uh, the team's big, where I think we're north of 100 people, um, very engineering heavy, um, hence our ability to be able to come up ideas, ship, and then bring them to market. Um, but it's a blast. I mean, I've, I've boomeranged at the post. I love the post. And uh, they've given me the keys to <laughs> drive the car in many different directions as I see fit. So, And how did you find your way to working in the media industry? Because I find most people either know they're going to be in media because they want to be a journalist or have no idea they want to be in media and just sort of fall into it. Yes. Yeah, so, so I'm definitely an accidental media executive, I'd say. Um, 
I know that's somewhat cliche because I feel like um, the most interesting people in media uh, do take a rather uh, strange course to get to where they are. Um, you know, because I do, I do think that in the media industry, the most interesting people are actually non-experts in you know the area that they've now become experts in. Uh, but I wanted to be a music journalist. Uh, I still, you know, a decade later, really want to be a music journalist. Uh, I actually um, co-started a blog called Stay Thirsty, not the Dos Equis version, um, unfortunately, but staythirsty.org, uh, where we started blogging and interviewing musicians and going to shows. And uh, I really always wanted to be a rock star, but I'm very, very, very amateur musician. Um, I'd even say shitty <laughs> across a variety of instruments. Um, but I felt that the closest way that I could get into being uh, into the music scene or, you know, quote unquote, trying to be a rock star was writing about it. So uh, started the blog, uh, did a lot of work there, uh, interviewed a lot of huge artists, Bill Ward from Black Sabbath, Dave Davies from The Kinks, My Morning Jacket, Animal Collective, uh, a ton of record label executives right from decades ago to current. And it was really a blast. But um, anyone who works in that space knows that it's not a very uh, it's not a very lucrative business, I'd say. And eventually, I had to find a real job on the side. Uh, I applied for a job at the Huffington Post, the blog <laughs> on Craigslist. Uh, I was really just looking for anything where I could leverage kind of my editorial background to get a paycheck. Um, they wouldn't hire me for an editor role. I think it was like an associate lifestyle editor role. But they did come back and they said, look, we're looking for people who have editorial and creative backgrounds to think about how we could start building products around our business, um, which was really interesting because at that time I was like, sure, if you'll pay me a little more, right, I'll do it. <laughs> um, I think a lot of media operators uh, do think that way. But it was really kind of like the the start of something really interesting throughout my career, which was this um, this understanding that so many creative people feel that working on the business side um, is kind of restrictive to their ability to create. So you find, at least within media companies, a lot of people who are, you know, quote unquote, creative, want to work in the newsroom or want to work in design or want to do things that are really tied to editorial. And I found that on the business side, there really wasn't a lot of competition for uh, being able to come up with new ideas, being able to test things. And it was really an amazing venue to really do whatever you wanted, because if you were able to make money while doing it, then everyone lets you run, right? If you were trying to do new creative stuff on the editorial side, it had to go through an editor and designer and everyone had an opinion on the homepage. And on the business side, they were like, hey, look, if you could bring in 50K or 100K, go do whatever you want, right? Or build it with whoever you want. So that was kind of the start of it at HuffPost. Um, I started native advertising there, um, which at that time we called social marketing, but it was this idea of how can we leverage software to uh, better tell brand stories because display advertising was pretty shitty. And we really wanted to uh, lean in on uh, what made us unique, which was our CMS and our software and really thinking about what that meant for brands and driving revenue on the advertising side. And that was kind of it, right? Like that was kind of like the explosion of me realizing the opportunity that I had on the business side of media um, and how it was very, very open to risk taking as long as these were calculated risks and 
helped drive a lot of attention and value for the brand. And since then, I've been I've been kind of hunkering down, going back and forth, um, you know, throughout many industries, but really focusing on the business side of of media, tech, and new ventures. Um, because I just find that from a creative perspective, it 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 allows for a lot more creative flexibility than I think any other area within a media company. So what's interesting about your career is you sort of came of age at the same time many of these VC-backed media companies were really getting all the press in media about media. Uh, and in many respects, the Huffington Post was the originator of the idea that or the thesis behind many of these VC-backed media companies. In the end, though, they're all really struggling to just even break break even and become profitable businesses. In your opinion, where did it all go wrong? <laughs> so, so it's really, it's really interesting because the Huffington Post was a VC backed media business with a very good exit. Um, I think, I think it, it was somewhere around $315 million cash acquisition to AOL uh, at the time. And at that time, when the Huffington Post was acquired, uh, the way that we thought about media and building a media business was very different than the way that we think about it now. I mean, I could, I currently work at the Washington Post, and I remember being at the Huffington Post and and not even acknowledging the Washington Post, not even thinking that they were, you know, going to be around in the next five years. We like quickly drove past um, New York Times, we drove past CNN in traffic. And it was really just a game of how can you distribute content farther? How can you be more discoverable, right? Uh, how can you be more socialized? Like we literally built the CMS to do that, that any writer or editor was able to simply put in a headline that then transcoded to an SEO headline, to a social headline and connected around the web links and then deep linked within um within the article itself so that we won in SEO and we won in social. And it was less about kind of the reputation of the brand and more about being the first link or URL to reach that user. And it's like kind of crazy to think about it, right? Like a decade ago, if you would Google something, I don't know how much you focused on the URL that you were clicking on or even the brand within the URL that you were clicking on. You, you looked for something or your friend shared something and you clicked it. And now, especially you know, around 2014, 2015, 2016, that totally reversed, right? Like media started to become a reputable uh, business. Uh, You made sure that anything that you clicked on was from a source that either you knew about or that you trusted and the game completely changed. And I think that it only focuses on one component of where venture-backed media went wrong, but it highlights a critical um, point which you and I talk about often when it comes to brands is that reputation is long-term, right? Like building, building a media company that distributes content and chases clicks and views is a good high short term. But in order to really kind of grow a business, you have to have brand affinity, right? You have to have reputation and, you know, the consumers have to wake up every morning and, uh, want to engage with your content, or if your brand went away, they'd severely miss it. And I remember at one point, I think it was like in 2017, I was thinking about, well, if you close your eyes and you woke up and you know you didn't have that BuzzFeed listicle, or you know you weren't able to watch a Vice video, or you know RIPMike.com, you weren't able to get that content. Like, do you really care? And and I've never I've never come across anyone that was really 
so uh, hung up on the idea that if those brands didn't exist, that would be a problem. But when you think about the Times or the Journal or CNN or Wash Post, right, through through decades of reputation building and value that they've delivered to you know society and readers, they've kind of built that credibility. So I think like venture back media came in at a time where advertising um, was was a very lucrative business um, that dug in on scale. Um, I love, I forgot who originally came up with the um, term, but venture story time is a really interesting, um, is a really interesting theory, which is basically like when you build a business, right? Like, you know, that as you achieve and grow scale, or you knew, I should say, that you'd be able to monetize that scale and attention via ads, right? Like, you know, hundred billion dollar business, um, you know, emerging platforms like Facebook and Google totally dominating that idea. So when VCs were looking at the idea of investing in media companies, the notion was, okay, we'll give you this money up front, knowing that you're going to do whatever you can to drive scale. And then we'll be able to turn on the ad engine and the money will start coming in. Well, that stopped happening, right? Like that, that really stopped happening, you know, this year. Um, but signs were really showing coming up to it when Facebook and Google started dominating uh, the advertising business. It was a lot better for brands. It drove more value for them and media companies, you know, controversially, but I believe this like really became like a nice to have. So you had to focus a bit more there. And now more than ever, right? Programmatic CPMs are low. Uh, there's changes in cookie legislation. You know, the ad business as we knew it is essentially uh, crumbling and is going to be redefined. And, you know, what VCs invested in from a media perspective is completely different. Now, some I think were smart, right? Like BuzzFeed, I think, um, for investors, they thought about new ways to do advertising. They even doubled down on native ads and ignored programmatic advertising during its peak. Um, and then they came to it later, you know, unfortunately, when it's become somewhat too late. And, you know, there are other companies that have thought about subscription models and venture, but I think the biggest miss when it came to venture back media was this idea of venture story time that, well, if we invest and put money behind this and if scale is achieved, then we're really going to be able to rake in the cash because that's how the internet business works. And now, you know, the internet business has turned around and the consumers, right, have turned around and the brands have turned around. And essentially every element of that economy has said, no, sorry, right, we're changing the game. And the value exchange has completely changed, thus the investment in those sort of companies and those assumed outcomes have completely changed. I want to spend a little bit more time on your career and then we're going to dive into the ad business because, you know, I think you and I talk a lot about ads, but before we do, at what point in your career, you decided that you wanted to try and run a crypto company. And while Poet ultimately didn't really work out the way we all thought it might have, what about blockchain technology intrigued you? and made you think it could be applicable to the media business? Blockchain came to me. Uh, I didn't necessarily seek it out, but it was a serendipitous time when I was going through some philosophical thinking about what the media business looked like today, or at that time, 2018, and what the media business should look like tomorrow. And it's really interesting, you know, at the post um, at that time, because again, I worked, 
I created the R&D team at the Post and ended up leaving and, you know, Post Poet um, came back. Um, what was really interesting in all of the conversations when we spoke to readers or when we strategize internally about our business is that, you know, people should subscribe to the Washington Post because they should support, right, the effort and the work that journalism does, right, and that it's necessary. And while I believe that personally, when I think about where consumers spend their money, right, it's usually not in the element of support. It's usually in the kind of grouping of need, right? Like I don't support Spotify, right? I kind of need Spotify in order to listen to music offline, right? When I'm on the subway or when I was on the subway and I don't support Netflix, you know, I need Netflix. And frankly, now in this creator economy, like there's some parts of, um, there's some creators that I do feel I support, but there's some creators that I essentially need. And I felt like it was very interesting to hear readers respond that way. Like, Hey, do you subscribe to the post? Of course I support the Washington post. And it started to like jog my mind a little bit to say, well, journalism is important and our product is valuable, but we need to start thinking about how we put attribution against that, right? Like how we start to really make journalism a business that is quantifiable to that consumer where it starts to move away from just being something that you consumers support and and move towards something that you know you consumer need right or value and that is you know more so critical uh and as I started thinking about that, and also at that time, you know, as we just discussed, like the advertising business was starting to evolve and the post was very dominant on the advertising side of media. So we were fortunately able to kind of see trends a bit sooner than I think a, a lot of other media companies. Uh, I started to think about how we started to put value um, and attribution um, and like quite literally quantify uh, the business behind journalism and the business behind creative work. And, and at that time I was approached by poet rather, uh, rather aggressively. Like at first I was like, fuck no, I'm not going to blockchain. Right. Um, <laughs> and then they came back and they came back and I started really kind of thinking about what that software did as an application and whether or not, right. Blockchain could be an interesting approach. Again, poets original thought process um, was really around kind of attribution, right? Being able to put creative works on the blockchain, being able to show its permanence um, and being able to essentially have like a catalog of information that was immutable, right? On on the Bitcoin blockchain at that time. So, so I went over to Poet um, and that's really what we started working on. We started working on this idea of, okay, whenever someone creates something, how do we create an immutable record of that creation? Um, what comes after that became even more interesting, right? Like when you start to think about how creators manage the distribution of their work, um, when things are on chain and when the creator has a bit more control as to how that gets distributed, um, there's like a wealth of opportunities that start coming to your head. One example of which I always use is like when you're on Twitter and when you post something on Twitter, say this is a shitty example, but say I'm, in the streets of Manhattan and I take a selfie with Kim Kardashian and I post it on Twitter. Uh, I basically do that for my friends to see, but all of a sudden you'll see TMZ at mention me or 
people at mentioned me and say, hey, Jared, I'd love to use this. Can you grant permission or can I use it? And I'd love to, and like at Poet, I was like, well, if we're able to kind of stamp this, um, this IP on chain, well, now the creator gets to kind of develop a contract that starts to say, sure, like you could use it and here's the contract for use. Or, you know, you think about the wire service and media and how that's completely kind of dropped in this new digital economy. And when you start to give more control to the distributors of that information, then you start to bring that value back to content. And there's a lot of different things that kind of work through there that frankly, I'm still obsessed with and working on, I'd say like on the side and thinking through on the side, but kind of in short, right. You think about the media business, right. And you think about how so much emphasis has been put on content and how commoditized content has really become and, you know, I don't have to tell you how much, right, you and I are talking on a Saturday, right? Like, I don't, I don't have to tell you how much work you put into creating this content and all the sweat equity and all of the thinking and all of the distribution, right, for that content to just be commoditized or, or like, ripped or, or, or uh, misused, right, or misattributed. So I think there's still big business there, and that's kind of what attracted me most to Poet. Um, and I still think that that's a huge opportunity today. And one of which, even at the post where we're thinking about how to build products for not just for our own business, but also for the larger market. Let's talk about advertising now, because while everyone else is really excited about subscriptions, you're one of the media executives out there still saying, wait a second, everyone, there's a big business here. Like, let's, let's pay attention to that. So Brian Morrissey, formerly of Digiday, which is still going to take me a little time to get used to saying formally, says that the original sin of internet media was separating the audience data from the media impression because ad inventory ultimately became commoditized. However, as you've said to me in many of our DM conversations, ad agencies only want to buy via programmatic channels. How do we correct for this sin when the major buyers only want to buy it one way? I think there's never been a more obvious moment of disconnect between publishers and advertisers than as we've seen when coronavirus hit. Uh, I think when coronavirus hit and media agencies and brands paused campaigns, um, there was a bit of a slowdown, you know, in response to that, but also for the campaigns that were running, right. Brand safety, which has always been around and important, you know, for advertisers and brands to know where they're running and what they're running alongside. Um, it started to become amazingly obvious that publishers who were creating this content, right. And much of which at that time was about, coronavirus, because that's what society needs to be informed about. Um, 80 to 90%, right, of that coverage was being blocked by advertisers. And, you know, on one side, on the advertisers and brand sides, right, like they create block lists of words that they do not want to be advertising alongside or advertising against. And, you know, they're really, they're really generic, right? It's like coronavirus or COVID-19 or whatever. But on the publisher side, right? Sure, there is some content around COVID, right? And COVID-19, but there's also 
hey, here's 10 things that you should be cooking, right, during COVID, or here's here's five children's books to read to your kids while you're home during COVID. And publishers weren't able to monetize any of that <laughs> via ads because of these block lists. And I had a ton of conversations, right, with a lot of ad tech companies um, because from a publisher perspective, right, like advertisers say they want to support journalism, right, quality journalism. Um, advertisers say they want to advertise alongside of it. Um, and we as publishers, right, we really focus on two major things, right? Like one, how can we drive the best user experience, right, for for our readers? And, and two, how do we drive an amazing advertising experience, both for our readers, but also that's beneficial to brands? Um, and why, and while we think we're working towards kind of achieving a goal, which in the end should be to get and attract more advertisers. In fact, by doing that, right, we also start to recognize that, okay, a lot of these advertisers have different sorts of structures and setups that they need to do in order to deliver on their business. And ad tech has always gotten a bad rap, right? Like, and usually like they're in the acronym world, like the SSPs and you know, the DSPs and the middlemen and why are they involved and, you know, why are they distributing this way and what data are they collecting? And, you know, it's all bottom of the barrel. But through my conversations with ad tech companies, what's most interesting is they're like, hey, like we represent the brands, right? We're not just coming in and trying to intermediate, even though I don't necessarily buy that. I think the last ad tech Lumiscape was like 7,000 fucking companies. It's, it's like absolutely insane how much goes through that chain to for ads to get to the publishers. But it was an interesting point of view, right? Because you often think of like the ad tech companies as as the problem, but they are, are they they are also representing the needs of advertisers, right? Not to say good or bad, but there is a relationship there. Um and we want to, right, as an industry, and I think we've always had a desire to, on the publishing side, create native and unique and valuable advertising products on behalf of advertisers, right, that drive user experience. You've seen that with native advertising um, and the creation of branded content teams. You're seeing it right now in the newsletter uh, business where it's very clear what ads are coming programmatically via live intent. And then what ads are native and fluid and look very, uh, in fact, beautiful and kind of unique within that user experience. But it's hard, right? It makes the business harder as you try to think about things that are more unique to you as a publisher and more native, even though they drive a better user experience, it starts to become another line item, starts to become another creative, starts to become another direction that the advertiser and the agency needs to work for. Um, and you think about like programmatic, right? Like we, we talk about this often, but when people talk about programmatic, they're usually talking about the creative. They're saying programmatic advertising sucks. I hate those programmatic ads. Uh, Andy Weissman at mentioned me the other day and asked me a question like, like, what are those horrible, like the worst ads on the internet are the ones that follow the, are the ones, the products that I've already bought and that follow me. And like, those are you know, retargeting pixels usually from Criteo or uh, Amazon, and they're usually broken, right? They're supposed to know that you purchased this and they should recommend something new, but, you know, 99% of the time they don't work and it's broken. Um, and that's what we think of when we talk about programmatic advertising is the creative, is that experience, 
and it's brutal. But programmatic advertising is really just automated buying, right? And Facebook, right, which is 98.9% advertising revenue in their business, is a programmatic advertising business. Brands log in, agencies log in, they choose their format, they choose their targeting, and then they execute and deliver. Same with Google, right? All of those search ads um, is brands, advertisers log in, they could bid or they could do it right through an auction. Um, but programmatic as a buying mechanism is not only the future, it's here, right? It's how things work. So the struggle for publishers, right, uh, constantly is you want to build something that's unique because you want to have a direct relationship with your consumer. You want to build something that's valuable for them and that's native for your platform that drives a great user experience because we know that that could drive results. But advertisers really need to be able to execute at scale and they really need to hit their conversion um, goals, right? Which are often things that are highly, highly, highly efficient in the Facebook ecosystem, in the programmatic ecosystem, in the Google ecosystem. And when, when I say the programmatic ecosystem for some, um, for some listeners that may not necessarily like be in the ad business is that advertisers have relationships with, you know, the DSPs, the demand side platforms um, that help them execute their buys at scale. So where there's direct advertising, right? Which is an advertiser going directly to the Washington Post or going directly to a media operator or going directly to the New York Times, coming up with a plan. It could involve a bunch of different things, but the relationship is one-to-one. Advertisers through a DSP are now able to say, I am going to use this single creative and I'm going to advertise across the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um, any website or publisher on the internet, and I don't have to pick up the phone and talk to them at all, right? So when you think about that efficiency and scale, especially if it converts, then that's insanely valuable, right? For an advertiser, it's efficient, it's valuable, and it scales, right? For publishers, they really need to think about how they can build experiences that are either seamless or efficient on a direct capacity, um, or start to think about how products and tools that they build allow that to extend, right? And that's kind of the conundrum that we're in. I think the feeling around advertising, right, and the experience that we want to create as media companies isn't necessarily in line with how advertisers and agencies want to buy across the web. And that's a constant iteration and like, I hate the term innovation, but it kind of is an innovation. You have to work yourself out of the ideas and the structures that you're currently in to create something new, to create something uh, enticing for that buyer, that advertiser. Um, and it's an ongoing uh, it's an ongoing struggle to really figure out how to get more of those dollars directly from the brands rather than indirectly when you are exactly kind of what you defined as what Brian said, um, Brian Morrissey said, you know, you do just become uh, your audience, right? Like an advertiser doesn't necessarily want to advertise on the Washington Post when they buy programmatically. They want to reach a particular user that may at that moment be on the Washington Post. So I guess this is a good chance to tee up a conversation 
about some of the things that you're working on at the Washington Post. Uh, one of your major products is Zeus, which rather than me trying to explain it, I'll ask you to explain it. But how does that technology help publishers and ad buyers have that you know perfect storm of being able to buy programmatically while still not making all ad inventory commoditized? Zeus was a accidental endeavor that turned into a huge business for the Washington Post. And when I say accidental endeavor, um, back in 2015, I founded uh, a group called Red at the Washington Post, and it stood for Research, Experimentation, and Development. And the whole idea around it was that at that moment, ad blocking was huge. Um, and every single publisher right, was trying to fight ad blocking by blocking readers from coming to their site if they use an ad blocker. And we kind of looked at the landscape and said, well, shit, right? Like the ad experience across the web does suck, <laughs> right? The ad units aren't ideal. The user experience is not ideal. You have pop-up ads, you have things everywhere. Um, and instead of us kind of going the direction that other media companies were going, which was basically like, we understand user that the experience is awful. However, this is how we make our money. So deal with it. We took an approach to basically say, look, let's be honest about the industry, right? The ads do suck. The experience does suck. And instead of us trying to figure out how to climb uphill against the obvious uh, battle, which was that experience, let's create a separate incubator group that actually tries to build ad or revenue products for brands that is in fact better, that is in fact more fluid, that translates better, um, you know, that is more native. So we did that, right? And we built a ton of products within the Red Group over the course of like two years. We built uh, a lot of technology that was really focused on facilitating brand assets into more creative native assets. One great example was one called FlexPlay um, because social video was huge, right? But we noticed with social video that 80% of videos on Facebook were watched with without the sound on. That's why you saw like now this news and all of these creatives build like closed captioning overlays. Um, but we knew that the relationship with our advertisers when it came to video advertising was usually just taking their, let's say, um, video creative that they were going to use on television, right? And squeeze out those assets to put on, dis uh, to put on mobile or desktop display. Um, and we essentially got that asset and would run it as a pre-roll. Well, we built a tool that basically said, okay, advertiser, give us that video 15, 30 second asset. And we in our software within minutes could transcode it to auto start, auto stop animated GIF with closed captioning, where now we created an asset for advertisers, but also to run on the post that became a social video asset with their existing asset. And that became valuable and unique. So like that was kind of like an example of what we were building with Red and it built, it, it like blew up our advertising business to the fact that we were first time profitable. I think it was back in 2017, kind of on the heels of a lot of the work that was being done there. But in 2017, right, Facebook Instant came out, right? And we, again, like, I think it's five years ago to the day, I think actually, or two days ago it was. The Washington Post, right, like, at that time, right, in, in, in all of our kind of infinite wisdom, 
was going to be the only publisher to go all in on Facebook Instant, right? We said, look, our readers are there, right? Facebook is a huge partner. They're building this experience that promises to drive the best user experience, right, for readers to keep them within the Facebook environment. It was going to have a clean ad experience. And we wanted to go big or go home. So we were going to go all in, right? So we go all in. And at that time, AMP was picking up as well. Again, this promise of platforms facilitating a better user experience for content and journalism. And for, I'd say like four to five weeks into the program, right, which was going well, we're all sitting around a table, like the executive team, and we're like, holy shit, right? If all of our content is available on Facebook Instant and Google AMP, and if the experience is faster and better than what they get on the Washington Post, then there is zero incentive for any reader to come to the Washington Post, for anyone to subscribe to the Washington Post, for an advertiser to advertise on the Washington Post. So we had like a crisis moment where we basically sat down and said, okay, like we need to build an experience on the Washington Post that's on par, if not better, than what our readers and advertisers are getting on Facebook Incident on Google AMP. And we looked around, right? We, we like looked around to other publishers and basically said like, who's doing this right, right? Whose site is fast? Who has high viewability? Who's delivering an experience end-to-end -end that's completely fluid? And it's not that nobody was. It's just that there was no universal way to do it. We saw that some publishers were struggling. Some publishers had an idea of what they should do. But there was no real way to do it universally at scale that was seamless. The second thing is we went to Google, right? Google was a huge and still is a huge partner of ours. And we said, look, like publishers are struggling with site speed, with viewability, with delivery, you're the largest, you know, ad, uh, uh, ad server on the web. If you could solve this problem for us, you could then bring it out and it's a big business. And Google's response was kind of similar to what we saw when we looked at publishers. It's like, look, every publisher does things differently. There's incremental things that we could do to improve, but net net, it's a publisher problem, right? It's not, it's not something that we could solve via ad tech. So at that time we were like, look, we have two options. We could either struggle or we can try to solve this problem, right? Which was really focused around speed and delivery in a universal framework type way. Very luckily being owned by Jeff Bezos, right? We kind of have the um, mentality and engineering structure to say, okay, let's try to build it. And out of that came the core Zeus product, which was Zeus Performance. Um, Zeus Performance is a technology framework that powers and delivers all of our revenue software, all of our partners, um, all of our partners and all of the things that are proprietary to us on the Washington Post. It's an end-to-end -end software. So from the programmatic intake side, which in the industry, like we call a header wrapper, to the JavaScript libraries that help function and decide how ads are delivered, lazy loading, predictive loading, smart scrolling, batching of network calls, all different software components that focus on how those technologies deliver. And then as things go into Google, which is the ad server, Zeus Performance is responsible for every single advertisement that comes out of Google, uh, uh, the Google ad server, whether that's direct, indirect, anything. And what we found when we solved that problem is that, wow, the Washington Post became really fast, right? We loaded everything on the Washington Post, including ads, in under two seconds. 
And all of a sudden, and mind you, this is back in like 2016, 17, we were like, whoa, as viewability starts to go up on these ads, our programmatic CPMs and even our direct CPMs, because of the relationships of speed, were going up significantly. So fast forward, I went to the blockchain, I went to Poet, and then I, w- uh, I was brought back to the post um, for a few different reasons, but one of which was to launch Zeus for the industry. And we basically decided, okay, like let's launch this and market, right? Let's put Zeus performance out there. We already had an existing business called Arc Publishing, um, which is more on the CMS side and the workflow management side. Uh, so we knew that we could create another software as a service arm under kind of the advertising umbrella. Um, at that time, we didn't know if it was going to work the way that it worked for us um, as it would work for others. Again, like the the main thinking behind speed and viewability when it comes to ad tech uh, in the open web is that, sure, we could solve for viewability just by lazy loading, but then we're going to cut half of our impressions or we're going to cut our impressions in half because lazy loading basically means don't load ads until they're in view. Or the other side is, yes, we could solve for viewability and speed, but it's a design problem. But, you know, the newsroom will hate the idea of us putting sticky ads and banners everywhere. So we basically had to prove that with Zeus Performance, the software, we can essentially install a framework, right, that will both drive more revenue for websites and publishers, drive higher viewability without losing impressions, and drive a better experience, right, without changing any design. Fast forward to now. Uh, Zeus Performance now has 115 partners since, um, I'd say, February of 2020. All of these partners are on the Zeus Performance software, um, which manages their entire revenue framework. So think about that. Like Think about Zeus Performance as the AWS for advertising um, for publishers. All publishers are on it. I like to say it enables independence. They could choose which partners to work with, how they want to lay out their site, how they dictate their strategy. That's completely up to them. However, they're all connected to one another now, right? So every publisher on Zeus Performance is exceeding 75% viewability, is driving higher CPMs, is driving fast site speed. So now all of a sudden, when that benefit is for them and they're driving incremental value and revenue in the short term by both reducing the fixed cost of having to be an ad tech company and giving it to Zeus, but also increasing revenues by having better performance and better delivery, well, now think about what we build on top of that, right? How do we build a platform like a Facebook or like others out there that are built on top of the Zeus performance software, which is the promise of high viewable, high delivery? We're building first-party data mechanisms. We're building contextual mechanisms. We're building buy-side tools. We're building all of these different things with the goal of basically saying, look, premium content is important, right? We say authorship and journalism and creator economies, right, are critical and are valuable. Advertisers and both and subscribers, right, because that could go on top of Zeus too, want to be alongside of that. But brands and advertisers need a platform, right, and need a network that's going to drive their goals. And all of those things that we built Zeus Performance for, high viewability, speed and delivery, right, um, attribution, uh, contextual, are all built with the thinking of what do advertisers need and brands need and um, kind of evolving an ecosystem there. So I know that that was long, but I don't know how many people really knew kind of the background of Zeus. So I wanted to kind of 
dive in. So I want to leave advertising for right now um, and go to two of the main theses that you've sort of presented over the past year. Um, You know, the first is, you know, the need for media companies to look like record labels. What does that mean? How do media companies evolve to look like a record label? And, And ultimately, how does it change their business in, in which I believe is your opinion, a good way? Media companies. So this actually, it's funny. You asked before, like what, what enticed me to go to poet and what was kind of going through my head at that time. And I hinted at what was happening, like from consumer sentiment when it came to subscriptions and just this idea that we weren't really putting the right attribution and value on you know, where the work was happening. Um, in a similar way at that time, there was also this um, belief, which now is kind of like proven in that we need to build businesses around the creators themselves, uh, that creators are building a brand of their own. They're building individual reputation and media companies uh, have, have, ha, had not at that time, and I'd say still have not, thought about how to structure their business in a way that benefits them from encouraging the success of individual creators to, to go and build that brand. Um, and we kind of hear that today, right, in conversations like when you see what's happening with Substack and when you see what's happening Um, When people go to Patreon or when people go, quote unquote, independent, it's a very black and white issue, right? It's like you either work at a media company and you build for that brand, right? Or you go independent. And I don't believe that it has to be that black and white, right? I believe that there is a gray area, which in fact is a tremendous opportunity, mainly for media companies or larger organizations that are willing to acknowledge this to think about how they in fact build a environment and a business that attracts right and keeps that idea of going independent within their within their own uh kind of garden and 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 like what i mean by that is that And as it relates to record labels is that media companies right now, in fact, like when you hire, right, you are bringing in a lot of different roles and responsibilities. You have writers, you have editors, you have designers, you have, you know, people who who work in video, you have people who work in tech. Um, And it's really kind of to build around the brand. And I mean, you and I talk about this all the time. I think in this conversation, we kind of have to take news a little out of it because news becomes an outlier. Um, But you think about the relationship that, these media companies have with these individuals and, and none of it really, besides the fact that media companies do in fact build individual brands and that is a tremendous value for many individuals, they haven't really built a business around what that relationship looks like and the value individuals really see with the media companies themselves. So here's an example, right? Like every relationship with a media company and their employee from an economics perspective is the same, right? So on, on the input, it's basically like, okay, like you're a salaried employee, you get benefits. Those are the perks. Um, 
but we keep the IP, right? Like everything that you create here is basically built, let's say, under the Washington Post umbrella. Um, but you do that, right? Because we pay you. We're paying you to do that job. We're giving you benefits to do that job. That's the deal. But what's interesting is like, especially now in this creator economy, is there's been a lot of discussions I know like about BuzzFeed and a podcast they had where now creators are like, whoa, like our name is on this podcast and we want to be able to monetize this or we want to be able to own this IP or get royalties from it. But media companies aren't structured that way. So one idea of media companies at record labels is to say, okay, for some creators that want to come in and get the benefits of a media company and build with us, but also want some sort of um, incentive to build their own brand, right? And build something that they feel is somewhat independent instead of the traditional salary and benefits have some options, right? Which are kind of like, sure, like you can come in and here's the structure and here's what it looks like. And we own the IP 50, 50, or there's a lot of different variations that could happen there. But what I love about that sort of thinking is that one, it really emphasizes the value of a media company i.e. like a record label, which kind of gets lost today, which is media companies are brands. They have reputation. They have an audience. They are able to distribute. They have benefits. They have what I call like creator confidence, which is like editorial design, all of these things that help you as a creator be better. They have comfort, like insurance and libel and things that allow you as a creator to kind of um, uh, uh, focus on what you do best create. And it really kind of puts a huge spotlight on the idea that, wow, media companies are in fact probably more valuable for a creator than a creator going independent. If you are able to structure the relationship in such a way and put an emphasis on all the things that media companies are bringing to the table on the outside, right? You have like the upside incentive model too, right? Like as individual creators drive more subscriptions for a media company as individual creators drive more revenue as individual creators in fact want to leave right then there should also be a value incentive for media companies as they invest in these creators to also be okay with the fact that okay if i build a celebrity out of this individual and if they leave that's great because it's going to benefit my business long term right an example there is what if the relationship between a creator and the media company is okay. We joint own this IP and whatever salary structure is set up in this sort of way. And they build that together. And then when that creator leaves and builds their own business or sells that IP or distributes that IP, there's still a value return, right? For that media company, because they are both co-owners in this. So you essentially like let your creator fly. And I really like for multiple reasons, I also love this idea and I'm obsessing over this idea because you hear all the time when people start to go independent, the first thing, you know, pundits or whoever, whatever you want to call people on Twitter, like to say is like, this is why media companies shouldn't invest in creators, right? Because they're the brands and when they invest in creators, creators then leverage that and then they go out on their own. And that's just because the economic incentives aren't set up that way, right? If you're a media company and if you don't think that you should be investing in individual brands and building creators, you're completely thinking about it wrong, you're doing it wrong, and it'll burn you in the end, right? So like you really do need to think about how you attract talent, how you are in fact becoming a talent company, how you put a lot of the values, right, and benefits that enable these creators 
front and center as why they are working for you and what you bring to the table. And think about the economics as an exit, as when they grow and when they evolve and as you boost them up, how do you media company financially benefit from doing that? So that's like from like the traditional media company point of view, but then there's also all these amazing things happening, which I know like we could dive in depending on where you want to go. But like as people go independent, right, what does success look like? Well, success looks like they start to grow. They expand their business. You're seeing this with everything bundle. They start to bring more people together. They think about what they need in order to operate as a micro label, AKA new media company. And they then build and start to structure themselves as this next entity, next media company as well. So the end goal is becoming a media company, right? It's more so traditional media companies need to think of themselves as record labels and adjust their business to drive value out of structuring and building talent and releasing talent, but also emphasize what they are able to do that people who go independent can't do around creative comfort and you know, creator uh, confidence. And then on the flip side, right, these new software, like, like, like companies like Stir and, you know, agencies that are coming out, they're starting to think about how they can fill those gaps for these independent creators that are, that are like knowingly going to need this, but may not want to hire an editor, hire a designer, hire someone to do accounting, hire someone to do finance, right? So they're rewriting those sort of relationships where media companies used to have all these things in-house. Well, now this era, a new media company could exist where those things are more licensed or networked and not necessarily have to be under the hood of the creator itself. And then the second thesis that, uh, you know, kind of built on the record label is this concept of the Renaissance creator. Can you explain what that means and what impact that could potentially have both positively or negatively on publishers? The idea of the Renaissance creator um, and, 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 and self, self promotion and plug. I strong, I strongly encourage uh, anyone who's interested to read it because I for sure will forget all the details and (laughs) research and work that went into it. Um, But the idea of the Renaissance creator is basically around this notion that, when we talk about creators going independent, um, we don't really define what that looks like in a meaningful way. And I think when originally people started to go independent, especially those that were kind of creating brands on Substack or even as early as brands on Medium, it was always this idea of, oh, this is someone who you know has written or created at a media company, right? Whether like it's a box or you know, a WAPO or a Wall Street Journal, and who has accrued an audience there, and who has likely accrued an audience on social, and is now going to build a brand on their own because they have this audience and they're going to port it over. And through like research and just obsessing over this space, and after the media as record labels article, I started to realize, especially like in my conversations with you, Jacob, it's like, holy shit, it's actually the inverse right? The most successful independent creators aren't going to be those that worked at media companies and have now decided to become entrepreneurial and build a business of their own. But it's actually going to be people who have either worked in business or who are previously entrepreneurial that have a unique point of view and are now going to kind of set out and create and put that point of view out there. And where this becomes like insanely obvious is that the misconception originally of the independent creator was, 
oh yes, like you should go independent, you know, celebrity writer or well-known writer because you are the brand, right? And you should just focus on creating. And by coming to this platform, Substack or Medium or whichever, you could just focus on creating and then you turn on the paywall and everything does the rest. And that's in fact insanely untrue, <laughs> right? When you go independent, you are actually saying, I am going to focus less on creating and I'm going to focus more on building the business of myself or building the business of the individual, right? Whereas before I might've just been focused on writing about tech in a tech vertical. Well, now all of a sudden I need to think about audience development. I need to think about uh, how I'm going to make money off of this business. I'm going to need to think about accounting. I'm going to need to think about recruiting as I hire. I'm going to need to think about all of these things that were never a core focus or part of my job. And what's really interesting is that media companies, as they exist today, especially traditional ones, are insanely siloed. So outside of church and state rules, if you work in a department, you really just work in that department. It's not like if you work as an editor in the newsroom or a designer in the newsroom, you all of a sudden have all this opportunity to gain acumen as to, okay, how does advertising work? How does subscriptions work? What does consumer marketing mean? What does it mean to have a SaaS business? How does find like what's a PL, right? They like no one in the capacity of their job, even at the most executive levels, has any idea about how those things work. So as those people leave and go independent, it's kind of like a holy shit moment. Wow, now I have to learn all of these different things that I've never had to learn before. And I think that that's why you see many writers, like right, like Stirs, for example, Stir did pre-subscribe and there was a drop and the whole drop in, I love this idea, the whole drop was like, nominate people that you would want to go independent and mention like how much money you'd subscribe to them to encourage them to go independent. I think what we've learned is that the majority of people, especially writers or, or journalists, they want to be at the media company because they want to just focus on creating. They want to just focus on journalism. They like the perks and benefits of that creator competence of having an editor and design and distribution. They're able to kind of continue to build their reputation and they work for marquee brands. A lot of journalists and writers, I'd say 95% of them would rather be working at a media company than going independent. But the inverse right, is a whole different story. And you kind of see what's happening today, right? You see what's happening with your success with the media operator. You see what's happening with Webb Smith's success with 2PM. You see what's happening with the Everything Bundle. These are people who were entrepreneurial and who wanted to build a business and went into this knowing that we are going to, or I am going to build a business. And part of my job of building that business is creating an experience, creating community, creating content that people are going to want to pay for or advertise against. So net net, right? And in definition, the Renaissance creator is a creator, right? In this independent economy, right? That has the expertise and the knowledge of everything that it takes to drive the business of themselves, to drive the business of the individual. It's not someone who is just going to be a writer or not someone who's just going to focus on this area. It's someone that is willing 
and able and wanting to really learn every element as to how to become an entrepreneur and how to build a media business and take that forward and drive that forward. All right. So my last question for this episode is whether you're talking to publishers or creators and everything you know about how the ad business is evolving, about record labels, about the Renaissance creator, you know, taking all of that into consideration, what is some advice that you would give either a publisher or creator to help them succeed in the business we're in today? Media company, I'll start with like media companies. So I think media companies today really need to rethink the relationship that they have with their creators, um, what that looks like, right? Both from an economic perspective, but also from a creative and relationship perspective. And then how they could adjust their business to accommodate and focus on that. I think a great example is Axios, um, which I've talked about often, uh, which has really thought about the business of the individual and what that means for a media company. Uh, and they are the best example of that. Uh, I think you're seeing the New York Times slowly edge into that, whether they're doing that um, on purpose or not. You're seeing a lot of emphasis on individual talent. You're seeing a lot of investment in IP through Hulu and Netflix and relationships there. But media companies need to think of themselves as talent companies, i.e., you know, record labels. Um, I've said this before, right, that in two years, media companies and talent companies will be the same. And everyone's like, that's already here. And I'm like, yeah, talent companies are already structured as media companies. But there's no way in hell that media companies are structured as talent companies. And they need to move quickly to figure that out. Um, what I'd also say is that independent um, creators need to really think about how they open up opportunities for themselves and not confine themselves, right? I think there are a lot of platforms that are out there today that offer service um, and valuable service, but there should also always be kind of this idea of how can I evolve and how could I grow business? There's never been a media company right, that has been successful or insanely successful without diversifying their revenue streams. Um, what I think is really interesting with Substack, right, and I'm kind of like watching this in real time along with everyone else, is that, as I mentioned, like, I think independent creators, especially ones that are leaving media companies, they're basically first-time founders, right? They've never really have gone and built their own business or have never really uh, kind of jumped out on their own. They've either worked within a media environment or they've, you know, kind of created a blog or structure a media company of their own. But the idea of like going and jumping into this new world and building a business around themselves is completely new and in fact, terrifying, right? And I think Substack's done a really good job kind of transitioning those sort of creators that are looking to drive a business in a way that says, yes, you could come to this platform, you could bring your audience or you could build your audience and you could start to drive revenue and you kind of have things structured and set up. But I think you'll see as those creators start to expand or build beyond that, right? They will start to require or need more tools. They will, I strongly encourage, need to think about how to drive advertising revenue and brand relationships. Um, one thing to think about with advertising, right, is that don't pigeonhole 
your idea of advertising against what's currently happening today, whether that's, well, the duopoly, Facebook and Google are dominating, so there's going to be no ad revenue for anyone else, or display ads suck, and I don't want to run display ads on our site, right? You, you have to think about advertising as a relationship between the creator and the brand advertiser, the same way that you think about subscriptions or membership as a relationship between the creator and the consumer. There's a huge desire and there's huge business in having that relationship be one-to-one. And everyone who's building membership or subscription products today knows that. You want to own the relationship with your subscriber. You want to be able to engage them. You want to build that one-to-one because that's where the business is. The advertising side is the same, right? So advertisers have value. They have a lot of money and they want to align and deliver against both Topics and points of view, but also audience. And being able to build the opportunity to have that relationship is going to open up a huge value exchange for independent creators. Right now, what I'm seeing is that a lot of independent creators are either discouraged to think about advertising, or they really don't know what they should be doing. Either they come from, again, an entrepreneurial business background and, you know, a lot of people, especially on the Valley side of things, you know, are seeing Facebook's dominance and other dominance and see what ads do. And they're like, ads suck, ads are bad, stay away. And creators are like, you know, that's always what I've heard and thought of, so I'm not even going to try. But then on kind of the other side, it's like, okay, well, you know, the ad creative and these things aren't ideal and I don't want that. Get that shit out of your head, I'd say immediately, and really think about how advertising looks as a one-to-one relationship between what a brand could deliver and what a creator can bring. And a great example is like, okay, like GE may say, I want to advertise against Jacob Donnelly, the same way that GE may want to advertise against any influencer, advertise against any celebrity, advertise against any brand. If we believe that creator companies are media companies and that as creators transition themselves to brands, which are also media brands, then independent creators should think about their opportunity the same way that the Washington Post thinks about their opportunity. And revenue um, revenue diversification and revenue products and all of those things should be completely on par. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.